The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. Today I'm going to share with you some of the most vital elements of the Christian faith. They are going to go directly against much of what you have believed and much of what you have been taught. It's vital, though, that we understand these issues. America is facing a graveyard. We are facing a time of God's judgment on this nation. God's judgment came on Israel because of their unbelief and because they refused to obey his commands. Today, we're facing that same issue. Can I be very straight with you? We have been lied to. We have been taught an untruth. I struggled through all of my childhood with this issue. I struggled as a young man. I struggled as a seminarian. It's not been until the last years of my life that I finally have come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it is and how it works. Many times I wept before the Lord and beseeched him Teach me the gospel because the gospel that I've been taught just doesn't work for me. It is obviously a lie. How do I understand the gospel? This issue of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and what the blood of Jesus Christ does in our lives is the single most important issue facing America. It is more important than Ebola, It is more important than ISIS. It is more important than any other issue that could possibly face your life. The single most important issue is how then shall I be saved? And that issue expands into the issue of what must happen in America to avoid the judgments of God. What must be done in this land to turn us from the path of destruction that we are currently on? The answer is not a political answer. It is not an answer that can be brought by our president or our Congress or our judicial. They have all sunk. They have sunk low in in thievery, in lying and cheating. It astounds me what I see happening in this nation. Television, movies, internet, destruction and filth and vileness from every perspective flows forth into this nation, this once godly nation. Now, what must be done to change this? That's what I would share with you. Yesterday, I went back and gave a brief historical perspective. I'd like to review that with you today and then go further in that discussion. For many, many years, the Roman Catholic Church held sway over what we call the Dark Ages. And they were indeed dark, and men were without hope. Then came a light. Martin Luther is the one we recognize as being the great reformer. What he brought to us was a break from the wicked 
methodology of the Roman Catholic Church. The abuses of power, the abuses of money, and the theological abuse. And they were known as protesters, as Protestants. Now these Protestants, Luther coming with boldness, nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, he was the one who brought separation from Rome. Rome at that point was saying that salvation came by works. Luther came and said salvation comes by faith. Remember that famous phrase that he took from Scripture? The just shall live by faith. Unfortunately, in unbelief, he denied the results of this truth, holding that the faith of a moment was security for a lifetime. And so what he was really saying was, at the cross of Jesus Christ, a legal transaction occurred. And in that legal transaction, the atonement, a man's past, present, and future sins were forgiven. This is what Luther was teaching. Unfortunately, he denied the reality that we are saved, in fact, by faith now. His salvation faith was for a future day. And so Luther would say things like, at once righteous and a sinner. Or he would say, thou art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Or he would say, sin as you like, provided you believe. Or he likened original sin to a man who has a beard. He shaves off the beard today. But as long as a man lives, he says, such growth of hair and beard does not stop. But when the shovel slaps the ground on his grave, it stops. In just this way, he said, original sin remains in us and exercises itself as long as we live, but we must resist it by always cutting off the hair. And so his statement is to say that a Christian is always going to be a sinner and that the grace and blood of Jesus Christ do not deliver now from sin. Then John Calvin came, and John Calvin organized all of the focal points of the many Protestant reformers and focused them into a system. Now, unfortunately, he also saw that faith was something that happened historically and legally. And so he saw atonement as punishment. He saw it as a legal transaction with no change, no imparted life. It's my belief and I will demonstrate this in the scriptures in coming days, that atonement blood from Jesus Christ imparted full righteousness to us now, not in the future. But the blood of Jesus right now cleanses us from all sin and all evil. But Calvin taught that when Christ was punished, It had to be limited, a limited number of people who could receive it called the elect. 
and so they consign everyone else to eternal damnation, including the unelect infants and babies. Now, I want to I want to look at at John Calvin for a moment. John Calvin's theology literally pillaged the church of the gospel, giving us a limited atonement and a sinning Christian, in, in which both sin and holiness are said to abide in the same life at the same time. Calvin's personal life was as corrupt as his theology. He was a tyrant in Geneva. And yet today he charts the doctrinal course of multitude millions of people around the world, including America, influencing their eternal destiny. I cannot tell you. Only Judgment Day will tell us how many millions of people have been consigned to hell because of John Calvin. His life was completely devoid of the fruit of the Spirit, and his doctrines were devoid of Scripture. Now, historians tell us of the atrocities of John Calvin when he was in Geneva. Historically, it's been referred to as the Rome of Protestantism. Let me share what I mean. In five years, 1542 to 1546, in Geneva, at a population of 16,000 inhabitants, he executed 57 people, 76 banishments, and all of these sentences were sanctioned by Calvin. And then when John Calvin learned that Michael Savetis, a doctor, had proposed to come to Geneva to hear the preaching. Calvin said, I am unwilling to pledge my word for his safety, for if he shall come, I shall never permit him to depart alive, provided my authority be of any avail. Of course, he was the head of the government also for Geneva. This man, Michael Servetus, disagreed with Calvin on the issue of the Trinity. Because of that, he was branded a heretic. Now, Servetus came. He sat in the congregation and listened to John Calvin preach. He was captured and he was burned at the stake. Now, some historians attempt to somewhat reconcile John Calvin's atrocities to a more sainted Calvin by citing his times as a point of consideration for his barbaric behavior. But the times stand as a historic rebuke to John Calvin for mere humanity, conscience, and public sentiment revolted against such behavior. Calvin was thus forced to go public with a defense of his burning at the stake, this dear Christian man. He did this in the year 1554. Peter Schaff, the great historian of Christian faith, writes, Calvin is necessarily felt it necessary, therefore, to come out with a public defense of the death penalty for heresy in the spring of 1554. He appealed to the Mosaic law against idolatry and blasphemy to the expulsion of the profane traffickers from the temple court in Matthew, the 21st chapter, verse 12. And he tries to refute the arguments for toleration which were derived from the wise counsel of Gamaliel in Acts 5.34, and the parable of the tares among the wheats, Matthew 13.29, 
and Christ's rebuke of Peter for drawing the sword in Matthew 26.52. The last argument he disposes of by making a distinction between private vengeance and public punishment. Let me simply say that had had the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul, had they on any occasion tried to have any person executed because they did not agree with them? Absolutely no. Did they live in barbaric times? Absolutely yes. Men were crucified. Men were beheaded. It was a barbaric time. It was a time when there was no toleration. Christians were severely persecuted. And now comes John Calvin severely persecuting believers because they differ with him on a little point of theology. Maybe a big point, but not a salvation point. And yet who has warned us of Calvinism? in our day? Which of the cult and heresy watchers ever warned anybody of the eternal dangers of the sinning Christian and of John Calvin? What I want to say to you, when we look at the history, it forces us to look carefully at our beliefs. Our beliefs did not come out of vapor. Our beliefs came out of the teaching we received from our parents or from our school. We've been influenced. And so our belief in a sinning Christian arose out of the teachings of the Reformation. The just shall live by faith. But you see, the difficulty we've had is that we have replaced meanings in words. So the biblical meaning of faith, which is fidelity to in the Hebrew, and in the Greek it is absolute persuasion that this is right. Well, in both cases... We have taken that word in the modern church and we have twisted the meaning so that today in the modern church we say faith means that we are absolutely persuaded that Jesus paid our penalty at Calvary and we're absolutely persuaded that all of our past, present, and future sins have been forgiven when that is not the biblical meaning used in the scriptures for what faith means. Faith in the New Testament means that I put my total confidence, I am absolutely persuaded that the blood of Jesus Christ imparted to me a new life now. That the blood of Jesus Christ forgave my sin And again, the word we translate as forgive is aphemy, which literally means a spatial separation between my old life of sin and my new life. We find that in John 1, verse 9. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word, and I'm looking at Strong's on the, on the computer, that word, to cleanse, is to purge, to make clean. How do you do that? By removal. When I take my clothing and I put it in the washing machine, 
I don't just put my clothes in the washing machine and expect that they will come out clean. I also add the hot water. I also add the soap. And the dirt is purged out of my clothing so that when I take the clothing out of the washing machine, something has happened to those clothes. They have been purged. The dirt has been removed from them. So for you to say, or for me to say, or for for Calvin to say, that the blood of Jesus simply was a legal transaction that occurred at the cross, but it leaves me in my sin, means I have not been purged. I've not been cleansed. And then in this 1 John 1, 9, it says there that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that word aphemy, again, means to separate from. There's a spatial connection, and I'll give you specific illustrations. The word aphemy is also used when the disciples pulled their ship up, their boat up on the shore. And they left their nets and followed Jesus. The word used is aphemy. They left their nets. There was a spatial difference, uh, defined distance between themselves and their nets. The same word is used a number of times, about 45 times in the New Testament. And it means a spatial dis- di- uh, distance was created between the object and the and the other object. So when it says that he will affirme my sins, he's saying, I will create distance between you and your sins. I will forgive you. It's not simply writing them off. It's separating us from them. If you are not separate from your sin, You have not been forgiven of that sin, and you are still held accountable before God, regardless of what emotional energy you put into crying out to God and saying, oh God, forgive me for this wickedness that I have committed against you. There is no forgiveness if there is not any separation. And so John Calvin and Martin Luther and the other reformers want to say that We are saved by faith alone. Well, yes, we are, but there is an imparted righteousness, an imputed righteousness. There's an imputed righteousness. There is a righteousness placed in us that enables us to live without the sin any longer. Come on. Be practical with me. Can Jesus Christ deliver and transform into a new person, an alcoholic, a drug addict? Can Jesus Christ, by the power, do you believe, I'm asking you specifically, do you believe that Jesus Christ has the power to deliver a man from lying? most of us would quickly say yes. If you say yes, then which sin is Jesus not able to deliver you from? And at the point where you define the sin that Jesus cannot deliver you from, you have immediately placed that limitation on the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are making it of non-effect in your life. And if the blood of Jesus Christ cannot deliver you now, what in the world makes you think that the blood of Jesus Christ can save you for eternity? If the blood of Jesus Christ has no power to deliver you today, how could you possibly believe that you will be saved in eternity? If we go to Hebrews... Well, let's begin first in the ninth chapter. The ninth chapter, verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of good things that are already here, 
he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer were sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive, present tense, the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, to set us free from the sins. Then we go to the 10th chapter. Verse 3, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I will come to do your will. What was his will? To destroy the devil's works. Not sometime in the future, but in our lives now. And in Hebrews, the ninth chapter again, I want to read this for you, verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared, pardon me, once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you really want to say to me, Pastor, God did not do away with sin now. Just as man is destined to die once and then after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. In the King James Version, it says, so Christ was sacrificed once to bear the sins of many people. If you go to the Greek, it literally means to pick up off. In other words, Christ was sacrificed once to pick the sin up off your life, to forgive you, to separate you from all sin. That is a present experience as described here in the Scriptures. Then it says he will appear a second time, not to bear sin. That is, he will appear a second time, not to pick the sin up off of your life, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In other words, if you are waiting until you die, believing that when you die, your sins will be removed at that great day of judgment, you have totally been taken by this wicked theology of a sinning Christian. You must leave your sin in order to be saved. And he is very clear in the writing of Hebrews that Jesus was sacrificed to take away, to lift up off your life the sin. But when he comes the second time, He is not coming to separate you from your sin. 
He's coming to bring your reward. And then if you look again at Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Another bright light came in the Reformation. His name was Arminius. Arminius, after 13 centuries, the church no longer had any message of the Savior who saves from sin in this life. The anti-Christian doctrine of a sinning religion had seized the centuries and the destiny of its inhabitants. Thus, generation after generation had lived and died without hearing of the Savior who saves from sin in the here and now. But at last, God raised up Jacob Arminius. You see, Reformation is ongoing. He was a very able Protestant scholar for that day. Nearly a hundred years into the Reformation, a voice was heard telling of a conditional salvation from sin in this life. For the first time in centuries, the voice of truth could not be stopped. It could not be controlled. It could not be suppressed. Arminius could not be silent, nor could he be silenced. A giant step is taken in the progress of Reformation. Scholasticism could no longer control the truth. Centuries of darkness lost hold of the souls of the multitudes. The doctrine of the sinning Christian is at last exposed. And it is that work that the National Prayer Chapel has come to do. It's that work that this broadcast, Pilgrim's Progress, has come to do to utterly expose the lie of the sinning Christian that you might be able to have your sins removed today from your life by the power of the blood of Jesus and walk in freedom and victory in Jesus Christ. Darkness receded and the light shone forth. And for the first time in more than 1,300 years, the light shined into the dark ages. Shortly after Arminius' death in 1609, his followers drew up a statement of their teachings, correcting the errors of Calvinism. Their statement was known as the Remonstrance, and their system of belief became known as Arminianism. These great worthies of the fate these scholars and saints brought to light the false doctrine of predestination, atonement only for the elect, and that a believer could not fall from grace through living in sin. The Armenian-Calvin controversy led eventually to a state ecclesiastical trial. Thus, the Synod of Dort, D-O-R-T, convened at Dort in the Netherlands on November 13, 1618, to treat the differences that existed between Calvinism and Arminius. The Remonstrus had lost before they had even begun. They were brought into that council of Dort, charged. It was not a fair discussion. They were not allowed to be seated as representatives. They were literally treated as criminals. Now, after many sessions, the Council of Dort, finally on May 9, 1619, closed. 
It was predetermined from the beginning that Calvinism was upheld as the official theological position and became in reality the state religion. Now I want to share with you what the Council of Dort finalized. One, total depravity. No ability or will to act toward one's salvation. Then he called this the old Princeton theology. It's just old-fashioned Reformed theology. It's called the TULIP. Not one of these acronym items is correct or theologically true. Every one is false, and they all hang one on another. And if you pull one out, the whole deal collapses. But that is what is taught. In fact, let me say it with sorrow. I'm the only holiness preacher on WAVA. All the others come from a Reformed perspective. But let me say, the air of the church today has become a mixture of Calvinism and Arminianism, of low Arminianism. What do I mean? The struggle in the church today has been that you are saved by faith, but you must constantly struggle and try to live above your sin. And so most Christians today walk around with a guilty conscience. They do the best they can, but they never really have the victory, but they're told they should have complete peace and say, I'm saved. So they, they say, I'm saved, but I'm a sinner. And so we get the saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And that statement is an utter lie. There is no truth in it. A sinner has not been saved by grace. Someone who is saved by grace is a saint, according to the scriptures. You can't be a sinner and a saint at the same time. You can't be in sin and in Jesus Christ at the same time. Utterly impossible. But because of a mixing of low Arminianism with Calvinism, we've given birth to every kind of strange teaching. The prosperity teaching, which really flowed out of an Armenian holiness perspective, now has certain elements of Calvinism woven into it. Things have become so convoluted and so crazy that it's necessary for us to go back to the scriptures and say, what do they teach? And in the days ahead, I'm going to do just exactly that. But the belief was in total depravity, that is, that a man has no ability to repent. In fact, one very famous Bible teacher says that you can repent only after you're saved. In direct contradiction to the word of Jesus saying, repent. Repent. That's the first command of Jesus, repent. But the teachers of the Reformed theology say, you cannot repent until after you're saved. And so one of the major churches in the Washington metro area, in Springfield, Virginia, in fact, took a, an action of the trustees for the pastor saying, do not teach. Do not teach that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only teach that he is Savior because we believe that he must First, come and choose the elect and save a person. And after a person is served or saved, then they can repent. And then they can learn that Jesus is their Lord. These are the convoluted and ugly things that grow up out of what I'm sharing with you. Number two, unconditional election. God sovereignly decrees the salvation of the elect only. 
In other words, John 3.16 is a lie. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't whosoever include everybody? Unconditional election is simply a lie from the pit of hell. Limited atonement. That Christ died only for the elect and all others are eternally damned. And then irresistible grace. Grace cannot be resisted for those for whom Christ died, the elect only. In other words, if you're an elect person, you cannot be lost, regardless of your rebellion against God and regardless of your sin against him, you cannot be lost. What ugly lies. And finally, perseverance. Eternally secure apart from moral responsibility or necessity for righteousness. They're saying it's the perseverance of Jesus Christ that he will save you regardless of what sin you commit. Now, adjournment at the Council of Dort silenced the debate on the floor, but the demonic spirits who use men to teach are not yet finished. Further manifestations will again show of what sort this doctrinal system is. Thus, the same spirit that had killed 57 men and banished 76 and burned Michael Servetus to death in Geneva around 70 years earlier, engaged in more of this practical theology. Arminius was condemned. He'd already died, but he was condemned. Public Armenian services were forbidden, and all Armenian ministers were banished from the Netherlands. One man, Hugo Grotus, who had cast his lot with Arminius earlier, was condemned to life in prison. Fortunately, by the grace of God, he escaped, and they never recaptured him. But another man that they did capture, one of the leaders, was beheaded just days after the synod. So, as with John Calvin in Geneva, the political and demonic spirit of the Reformation imposed its doctrines by violence and bloodshed. What I've described for you is known as the tulip. John Wesley brought the Reformation full circle with respect to the apostolic doctrine of salvation. With the realization that man can be saved from sin in this life, the Reformation took another giant step. Through the Wesleys, the doctrine of sanctification, entire sanctification, was restored to Christianity. Thus, the apostolic doctrine of full salvation was restored to New Testament purity. This was natural, for since men's hearts were now made right with God by being saved from sin, the saved soul hungered for all of God's will. The doctrine of sanctification of heart or heart purity, as it was referred to, was an inevitable conclusion for the Wesleys to arrive at. John Wesley said in 1729, My brother Charles and I, reading the Bible, saw that we could not be saved without holiness. Followed after it, and incited others to do so, and in 1737, we saw that holiness comes by faith. In 1738, we saw that men are justified before they are sanctified. Now, part of what the Wesleys struggled with was language. They tried to use the language of the Reformers. And this made life very difficult for the Wesleys. For the word justified was given a very specific meaning by Calvin 
and the other reformers. Justification for them was simply a legal decision made by God when Jesus suffered the full wrath of God, when God punished God on the cross, as Luther and Calvin would teach. When God punished God, the legal decision was made that all sin was forgiven but not removed. Now, the biblical meaning of the word justification is much different. See, this is part of what is so utterly confusing about this whole discussion, and it's why I'm slowing down today and trying to go in a very measured pace with you, because the word faith is totally loaded with a different meaning by the Reformers than the Bible uses. The word grace is used by the Reformers, by John Calvin particularly, as a covering for sin. And so reducing the blood of Jesus to that of bulls and goats. In the Old Testament, a man was declared righteous, but he was not made righteous under the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, Calvin comes along and he says the blood of Jesus simply covers your sin. He declares you righteous. So if you look in, and we won't go there right now, I will soon, in the book of Romans, it says in the King James Version and in the NIV, declared righteous. But the word declared is not in the Greek. It's added. Because they bought into the meaning of Calvin for the word grace believing that a man is only declared righteous, but he's not made righteous until he dies. I've shown you in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, that that's simply not true. As we look at this issue, the words we have to be very careful with. The word to justify comes from dikasune in the Greek. And literally, the meaning is to render innocent. In other words, to take through a process to make innocent. That's what the word justification literally means. And the derivative of the word justification is out of the Old English. And in the Old English, in the original meaning of the word justification, it meant to make righteous. But Calvin and Luther and other reformers reassigned new meaning to the word justification different from what the scriptures mean. So what is the rendering process that I go through to be made innocent? Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It is crucifixion. It is utterly giving up my life, and, and, and receiving Jesus Christ, receiving his blood, and being utterly transformed and having the sin by faith removed from my life. In reality, the Reformed theology is a legalistic theology. If you go to a Reformed church, they'll put much emphasis on seminars and workshops and strategies and doing your best and and always striving to deal with the sin but never being successful. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the blood deals with our sin and by faith we're made righteous as we submit to Jesus Christ, as we utterly consecrate our lives to him and utterly surrender to him and renounce our sin. He, He forgives us for our sin. He puts distance between us and our sin so that we no longer walk in it. So now, after the Wesleys, for the first time in about 1,500 years, more than 200 years into the Reformation, the doctrine of sanctification or heart purity is proclaimed on a full scale 
You see, until until we're able to begin to declare the full righteousness of Jesus, men and women are going to continue, you're going to continue walking in your sin, claiming that you're saved, claiming that you're walking in Jesus. Wesley had a saying that salvation was crisis salvation. What's the crisis? The crisis is what I've been trying to bring to you day by day on this broadcast, where you recognize that if you continue to walk in your sin, there is no sacrifice left for you. That you must utterly renounce your worldly life. You must be separated unto Jesus Christ. You cannot hang with the world and hang with Jesus. These issues are so vital. I weep over them. And this word is not taught. The Bible is put aside for the doctrines of men. Read carefully the book of Jude. So I come today asking, would you please pray for me? Would you please pray for the National Prayer Chapel? Would you please pray for Pilgrim's Progress? This word needs to go forth across all of America. There has to be a revival, but we have believed theology that blocks any revival from happening in our day. As long as we believe that a man can walk in his sin and he's still saved, there's no need for a revival. And so the devil has used the theology of demons to totally confound man and turn him from the path of righteousness. There are other passages we're going to go into regarding was the Apostle Paul a a sinner all through his ministry? Absolutely no. But we take Romans 7 and twist it to mean something that it doesn't mean. We take other portions of Scripture and twist it to mean what it doesn't mean. We're going to walk through those. You understand, this is the issue. I am eagerly inviting you to join me in this proclamation of truth. Join me in action and in word. Join me in financial support for this radio broadcast. Step into the, into the fight with me to proclaim to America the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your sins can be removed from your life and you can walk in freedom. Let me give you our mailing address. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You're also welcome to come and worship with us. Go to nationalprayerchapel.com and you'll find there a map and where we meet in hours of meeting. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia, and you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. You're welcome to email me any questions at pardonforsin at aol.com. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless. For the presence of His glory